Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on a mount of olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration, standing where he should not be. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out of the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter. For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out, I have warned you about this ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish, 
of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angel in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows, and since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do. And he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return. In the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you what I say to everyone, watch for him. Now remember, the gospel of Mark is about the good news of Jesus Christ. That's verse 1 of chapter 1. And many times that good news is served up as a direct challenge to the good news of Rome. You have to understand that the nation of Rome had a good news as well. But Jesus has more authority than all the world leaders who have ever lived combined, and his kingdom is eternal. And I want to say to you as well this morning that he hates the false piety and farce of religion. And we saw that last week in chapter 12, uh, that because the Pharisees and the religious leaders are still among us today. And so we need to be on watch for things like ornate church buildings and fancy robes and sacred objects and superstitions, special reverential titles, pomp and ceremony. God is not pleased when people try to look conspicuously religious to impress other people. And we can even see evidences of this charade in eastern Colorado, actually. There are churches and religions that are built on man-made tradition and external piety rather than on Christ and his word. And the words of Jesus, pay attention, apply to us today. But these disciples, these four who came and talked to Jesus about this, just like many people today, still don't understand that the kingdom of Jesus is going to do away forever with religious trappings. Why? Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of the heart. And we saw that all the way back in Mark chapter 4. If you remember the parable of the four soils, and I'll ask you again today, what kind of soil is your heart today? Is it good soil, ready to bring forth fruit for Jesus? We also saw it a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 7. Um, I preached to you uh, this passage that talked about what comes from inside of us is what makes us filthy before God. It's the sexually sinful desires, the hatred, the unforgiveness, the greed, the deceit. That's what makes us unclean before God. And so a beautiful church building or well-dressed people or ceremonies and rituals can do nothing to cure a sinful, stained heart. In fact, ironically, religion stands in the way of people getting right with God. Know this to be true. And so the temple that the disciples are looking at right now in this passage uh, was not the original temple that was built by King Solomon. 
That temple had been destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. And so what the disciples were looking at was the second temple, which was initially built by Zerubbabel and Ezra after the exile. So at the first century, you have this character on the scene named Herod the Great. The Romans had become the, the world superpower at that time. And they installed what are called client kings all over the empire. And Herod was just one of the client kings. He had power and authority. He was a king. Um, but he gave himself the title Herod the Great. That should tell you something about him. And it should also tell you that in the day and age in which we live, narcissistic world leaders are nothing new, right? This has been going on a long time. And so he was the one who began this massive refurbishment and expansion temple uh, project for the temple. Why was he doing this? Well, because he wanted to cozy up to the Jews, and this was his scheme to garner their loyalty. You see, if he could control the temple and the religious system, he could control the Jewish people. It was a brilliant scheme. And so you have this beautiful temple that had been built, and you have the disciples who are kind of being sucked into this a little bit because they're gushing about the greatness of the temple. But Jesus quickly puts it in perspective. Actually, Jesus had claimed in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, that he himself was greater than the temple. But for many Jews of that day, the temple had become an idol for them. The temple and religion meant more to the people than God himself meant. Now, the temple initially was a good thing. It was King David's heart to build the temple. It was Solomon who built it. But learn this about human nature. Any good thing can become an idol in our lives, right? Our possessions or careers can be gifts from God, but they can also become a snare to our hearts. Our spouse or our own children are gifts from God, but we see all the time where family comforts and activities and preferences become more important than following God. And so this is a heart check for us today. Is there any relationship or possession or position that you hold to be more important than Jesus in your life? Any voice or influence that you're allowing to speak into your life stronger than God's commands? Because if there is, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. He must be supreme in your life with no competition. And so Jesus says in verse 2, not one stone of this temple will be left on top of another. And 40 years after Jesus said this, the Roman general Titus came upon Jerusalem and absolutely leveled the city, including the beloved temple, just as Jesus said would happen. Now, the temple had to be destroyed. God willed for that temple to be destroyed because it had become an idol. It was in the way of what Jesus wanted to do with his kingdom. Um, the similar thing happened when Jesus was on the cross. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he uttered his last words, it is finished. Do you know what happened at that moment? There was a great earthquake and the veil in the temple, the curtain in the temple, was torn from top to bottom, indicating that the priestly system, the Jewish system of worship, had forever been done away with, and now all of humanity could have direct access and be reconciled to God. But the Jews still weren't getting that by this point in history, and so God had to have that temple destroyed so that they would learn God is not confined to a building. God is not confined to a system of religion. The church... It's simply a gathering of people in any place who love and obey Christ and his word. And so this statement that Jesus makes is startling to those first disciples because they knew their history. These are good Jew boys. They knew their history that when the first temple was destroyed in 586, it also represented the worst of times for the Jewish people. And so they've got to be putting two and two together in their heads. Okay, so if this second temple is going to be destroyed, then what's going to happen to the Jewish people this time? They've got to be thinking about that. 
And so in verse 5 through 8, Jesus now describes the world events and patterns that are going to characterize this period of time between when Jesus rises from the grave and ascends back to the Father and when he returns to earth at his second coming. That's the period of time, by the way, that we live in. It's called the church age or the age of grace. And now nobody could have imagined that this age that we're living in would have lasted for 2,000 years. In fact, all of the early followers of Christ, including the apostles, thought of the return of Christ as soon. And I'll use air quotes for that. They thought of it as soon. If you're a student of eschatology, which is just the study of last things in the Bible, uh, you're going to realize that the word soon is one of the most perplexing and complicated theological words in all of the scripture because with God, 1,000 years is like a day, and a day is like 1,000 years. And so Jesus says, take heed, pay attention that no one deceives you. We are called to be wise and discerning. And I would say to us, we need to turn off the TV preachers and the YouTube videos about these matters and get into the word of God for ourselves and read it for ourselves. Don't take someone else's opinion on these things. You need to do the time in the word of God yourself. Because Jesus reminds us that before he returns the second time, there are going to be many wars and rumors of wars on the earth. And in times of national and international duress, many Christians throughout the ages have often assumed that the end of the age is near. But Jesus said that wars and rumors of wars are not signs of the end immediately. So today we hear rumblings of war in China and Ukraine and Russia, North Korea, Taiwan, and the Middle East. Wars and rumors of war are everywhere and have always been. And so Jesus' outlook on this age, the current age that we live in, was not that there would be some kind of gradual peace that would just get better and better on earth. Rather, that war is going to continue to be a feature of life on this broken earth until his return. We are to expect that in our lifetime, we are going to witness more wars, famines, earthquakes, all of those things. And by the way, speaking of famines, I want to say something to you about this new climate change religion that's going around. Maybe you've heard of it. You need to be reminded that God decreed in Genesis chapter 8 after the flood that as long as the earth endures, winter and planting and summer and harvest will never cease. We as humans cannot change the natural order of the seasons. They will always be. That's not to say that we shouldn't take better care of our planet. It's to say that we should not have to bow down to the God of this age, including politicians and big tech that are shaming us and forcing us into adopt every so-called green technology that comes along without allowing any critical thinking to enter the conversation. Weather and climate patterns have always been cyclical, even in Bible times. So don't get sucked into the current paranoia. Be wise. Because these are the beginning of sorrows. Jesus said that these kind of calamities are not specific signs of the end, but literally the beginning of labor pains. The idea is that indeed they will eventually give birth to a new age, including the tribulation period and the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And so if you take that birth pains metaphor and draw it to its logical conclusion, then as the day of Christ approaches, we're going to see an increase in these global geopolitical events and natural disasters, just like labor pains, increase before birth. They're going to become more intense and closer together. In verse 9 to 13, in addition, Jesus told his disciples to be prepared for the persecution that would come before the end. And again, the persecution was not a sign that the end was coming soon, but simply should be expected. And so as we preach the good news, we will be hated by people who ironically will call us the haters. The Bible says that the good news is the stench of death to those who are perishing. 
Now, we don't want to be personally offensive in presenting the gospel. We don't need to go around holding up signs and being that kind of people. That's not what God has called us to. But just know this. The simple gospel all by itself is offensive because it tells people they must turn and repent of their sinful ways and put their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that all by itself is offensive and will cause people to hate us. Now, in verse 10, Jesus says, This gospel must be preached to all the nations. Before the end comes, the gospel must get out into the whole world. Now, to the exact extent that it must go to the whole world, we don't know. But we do know that through internet and radio and through missionary activity, the gospel has indeed gone into all the world. And Jesus told his followers not to worry about what to say when they had to give an answer or stand trial for being a follower of Jesus. At that moment, the Holy Spirit would give them the right words to say. And maybe you're like me, and sometimes you're in a conversation with someone, you're just like, I wish I had the right words to say. I wish I knew exactly what to say in this moment. The Holy Spirit, we're told, will give us the right words to say. We don't need to worry about trying to win an argument or convince people to come to Jesus. That's not how people come to Jesus. No one has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. We don't rely on our own wisdom. The Holy Spirit will give you the right insight at just the right time. And the book of Acts is our example of how that works. As the gospel goes forward, even in the midst of persecution, they were given the right words to say, and the gospel went forward, and people were being saved. Jesus says in verse 13, You will be hated for following Jesus, but those who endure to the end shall be saved. Those who are truly saved will maintain their witness of Jesus and be faithful to the end. So let me ask you this morning, are you willing to suffer for following Jesus? Are you willing to endure hatred from even your own family members because you won't, for example, attend a gay wedding or support gender transition? Are you willing to suffer the loss of friends, the loss of a job, or face a lawsuit because you stand on Christian convictions? Because this is what Jesus requires of his followers. And by the way, we're not immune to this here in the USA. There are militant and hateful people out there who are seeking to undermine and uproot every last vestige of Christian values in this country. And they're coming for our children. And so we need to be aware, we need to be watchful, we need to pray and pay attention. I would say to you, church, don't fall asleep at this time in history. We've got to fight for our children against indoctrination and godless ideologies that are being forced upon us by our own governments and school systems. Church, it's time to wake up and it's time to stand up, and it may start to cost you to do so. Now, in verse 14, the sign of the soon return of Jesus is going to be this event called the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 9. Essentially, the abomination of desolation speaks of the ultimate desecration of a Jewish temple, which will make the temple unfit for use. Second Thessalonians talks about this, and it says, the day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. That's the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, presenting himself as God. Now, there's just one difficulty that we have with this, is that right now there is no temple. It's been destroyed. It just, it's laid waste even to this day. And you can't have an abomination of desolation without a temple to desolate. After the Romans destroyed the temple in A.D. 70, there was only a small Jewish presence in Judea and Jerusalem for many centuries. Uh, they weren't organized. They weren't influential. They had no national status, no government, no king. And so the fulfillment of this prophecy for nearly 1,900 years seemed highly unlikely until the Second World War came. And you recall the genocide of 6 million Jews at that time. 
But after that time, the United Nations granted Israel national status in 1948. The very same day, five Arab nations surrounded Israel and wanted to wipe them off the map. But here they are, 75 years later. They were not able to succeed. Israel has remained intact. And now we can easily begin to imagine kind of the fulfillment of other prophecies because there was a literal Jerusalem, a literal Israel now in existence once again. But we know this about what's going on in the Middle East right now. There is an unending Jewish and Arab conflict over the Temple Mount, which is where a rebuilt temple would have to stand. There is a small but dedicated group of Jews who are passionately committed to rebuilding the third temple. They're, they've got even the pots and pans all ready to go for the sacrifices. They're even trying to breed these red heifers that will need to be used to purify the temple. They're all ready to go in, in 2023. It's incredible to see. Now, some Christians get rightly excited when they see efforts to rebuild the temple. But we should understand that the basic impulse or desire behind building a temple is not of God at all. In fact, Israel today is an entirely secular and God-hating nation, just like every other nation on earth. Those devout Jews who want to see a temple rebuilt desire to have a place to make sacrifice, just like the Old Testament. And that's not a good thing, because we as Christians know that all sacrifice for sin was forever finished at the cross of Christ. So any further attempts to sacrifice for sin or pay for sin is an offense to God because it denies the complete and all-sufficient work of Christ on the cross. So in verse 19 to 23, after the third temple is desecrated, we're going to move into what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, which Jesus says is going to be tribulation such as has never been seen since the beginning of creation and never will be seen again. Jesus says that this will be the most awful time in all of human history. It's going to be hell on earth. And when you consider the calamities that have uh, occurred throughout the centuries on this earth, that's a terribly sobering statement, right? And the book of Revelation describes this awful time when God will pour out his wrath on a God-rejecting world. Events that will unfold at that time will wipe out large fractions of, com of humanity in consecutive events. Now, in our history understanding, you go back to the 1300s, for example, you had the bubonic plague which swept across Europe and took out one-third of the population in an eight-year period. This coming tribulation will be far worse than that. World War I took out 20 million lives. World War II took out 60 million lives. But the events to come will be far worse than that, as large percentages of the Earth's population will die. In fact, Jesus says, unless God shortens those days, mankind would become extinct. But for the sake of the chosen ones, those days of tribulation will be cut short. So get the scene in your head of what's going to be happening toward the end of time. People who are under that kind of duress that is described here will be anxiously looking for a savior, won't they? Any kind of savior. People during COVID were losing their ever-loving minds over a virus for which 99% of the population was never at risk. And they were willing to give up all of their freedoms to a contrived science that held them hostage to their own governments in some countries for over three years. Understand from that, that's a prophetic event, church, that the mindset we witnessed at that time was merely a dress rehearsal, a birth pain for what is to come. Because we now know that the entire world can be controlled and influenced to believe any kind of false narrative by the power of corrupt media and whatever their phones are telling them to do. Jesus' words here are so important. Pay, pay attention, be aware, take heed. 
Because at this time, it says in verse 21, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ over here, or look, he's over there, do not believe it. No Christian should ever be deceived about the nature of Jesus' second coming. That's why you need to know your Bible. That's why God gave it to us. We don't have any excuse for being deceived. We need to read this and understand it. It's right at our fingertips. Because the return of Christ will not be some kind of secret or private event. You're not going to need someone to kind of decode it for you and tell you that it's happening over here as if you missed it. It will be earth-shattering. It will be center-stage pyrotechnics. It will be instant, and the entire world will see it. Now, among Christians all throughout history, during traumatic events, there's always been a heightened interest in the return of Jesus. In fact, Google reported a 20% increase in searches about the end times in 2020 when COVID restrictions started kicking in. Pretty interesting, huh? But Jesus told us to take heed, to pay attention, to watch and pray. And he has reasons why he wants us to take heed, to be full of anticipation, to be ready for his soon return. I'm going to give you four reasons why he wants us to be ready. Number one, because God made certain that a large percentage of the New Testament was written to tell us about events to come. Though we don't know the day or the hour, we can discern the changing of the seasons. And these prophecies are not here for us to ignore as if to say, you know what, Ah, Mark 13 is kind of hard to understand. We just don't really need to talk about that. We'll just do other stuff. He gave us his word so that we can know about things to come. Secondly, being ready has a purifying effect on our lives. And the apostle Peter wrote that since everything in the entire world is going to be destroyed by fire, what holy and godly lives you ought to be living. Don't be found having wasted your life and wasting your time when Jesus returns. We're to be alert, to be vigilant. The third reason we need to be ready is because we need to live with a sense of urgency for the spread of the gospel. Let me give you a poignant example right here at MVF. We just hired Pastor Miguel as our Spanish-speaking pastor. Why did we do that? Because we urgently believe that Jesus wants to save and reach many Spanish people here on the Eastern Corridor. Are you ready for that harvest? Are you ready to give your finances through your offerings to help make that become a reality? There's an urgency to the spread of the gospel, and that's why Jesus says, be ready. And the fourth reason we need to be ready is because it helps us hold loosely to the things of this world because it's all going to burn. Every possession you own, every house, every car, everything. And we need to hold those things loosely. We can give thanks to God for them. We can use them. We can have them. That's not the problem. The problem is was when possessions own you. And we're told to hold loosely to the things of this world. Verse 24 to 27, on the heels of this great tribulation, this horrible time in world history will be the return of Jesus. It says the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. And so immediately before the return of Jesus, before his coming in the clouds with great power and glory, the world will be racked by cosmic catastrophes, and the groaning of all creation will come to one final apex before the return of Jesus. And you can read all about this in other places in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah all talk about this. God will send his angels out into the four corners of the earth and gather his chosen ones to himself to keep them safe and to bring them to himself. Now, in verse 28, Jesus says, learn this parable from the fig tree. And remember, the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. Remember, Jesus cursed the fig tree because it was not producing fruit. But he says, learn this parable from the fig tree. When you see the leaves, you know the summer is near. 
In the same way, when these signs come, we can know that the triumphal return of Jesus is near. It's at the doors. Israel's the fig tree. And the nation was reborn in 1948. It is a prominent nation, punching a hundred times stronger than its weight. People have tried to attack it from all sides for years and years. They are the only nation in the world that has sustained an unending attack every day of their life. There are people who want them entirely obliterated, and yet they, they prosper. Many technological innovations have come from Israel. They are financially uh, punching way above their weight. The fig tree is in bloom. No fruit yet. There's no fruit at all from Israel, but there are leaves. And so Jesus says in verse 30, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. What generation is Jesus referring to? It's the generation that sees the abomination of desolation, that sees the tribulation period. These events are going to start to pick up a pace. They're going to happen in rapid succession, and that generation will see the return of Christ. And so Jesus says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Jesus makes the claim of uttering eternal words. In other words, you can take these promises to the bank. The chapter ends, verse 23 to 37, the emphasis that Jesus wants us to get. Don't miss this in the whole passage. Be ready. Watch. Take heed. Pay attention. Because the day and the hour no one knows. Not the Son, only the Father. Now, how could Jesus make that statement? Isn't Jesus God? How does he not know the time of his return? Well, part of the answer for that is that Mark, the book of Mark, presents Jesus as the servant, and the servant does not know what the master is doing. And so Jesus, in his voluntarily humbled role on this earth, uh, did not need to know the hour of his return. That wasn't important to his mission. And he's presented as a servant in submission to God the Father. Instead, the instruction couldn't be clearer. We are to watch we are to be aware. World events that are happening right now in 2023 matter. Things are falling into place. But church, I want you to hear one thing loud and clear. We should never fear the things that are happening. We should be wise. We should be understanding where it's all heading, but never to live in fear. We as Christians, we as believers in Christ, will never experience the wrath of God. We're promised removal from that. And so we must watch. When you correctly understand the demonic spirits behind the propaganda mouthpieces in our world, media, government, large corporate entities, you won't be caught by surprise. People are not ready because they fail to watch and they fail to pray. They're asleep. Jesus' emphasis couldn't be clearer. Pastor Don mentioned this a few weeks ago. The church in America is asleep. They're not discerning the times that we live in. Jesus wants us to be ready because we don't know when the master of the house is coming. He gave us this analogy, and this is repeated many times in the scripture. He's gone away on a long trip. He's gone to be crowned king in a distant land, and he's going to come back, and he expects things to be in order when he comes. And that's, that's where it comes for us, the church today. We need to be ready, not sleeping, not lazy, but rather active in spreading the good news, active in living holy lives, ready, waiting for his return. We don't know when it will be. Now, I want to close this morning by reading a passage from the book of 2 Peter. You remember, Peter was one of the four people who heard Jesus explain this in Mark 13. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew who came and asked Jesus about all these events. And so Peter has a, a keen interest in this. And 2 Peter is the book that was written just before Peter died. It was shown to him by the Lord that he was soon going to die. And so he wanted to write one last letter. And the, the words of urgency you're going to hear as I read this, uh, he urgently wants people to get the point. He says, this is my second letter to you, dear friends. 
And in both of them, I've tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Why has Jesus not returned yet? How much worse can it get? Have you ever wondered that? Like, what's it going to take that we're finally going to see Jesus return? There is only one reason. He is giving more people time to respond to the gospel in his great mercy. How merciful our God must be. 2,000 years of people with their foolishness and their sin. And he's putting it off just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer, so that one more person can be saved. Understand the image of the Old Testament ark, the Ark of Noah is, is a figure, it's a prefigure of the end of time. Noah preached for 120 years that judgment was coming and that the people needed to get into the boat to be saved. And you know what? Only Noah and his family went into the boat. That sets us up for understanding the end of time. We are called to invite people to get into the Ark. What's the Ark now? The Ark is Jesus. It's his death, burial, resurrection his death on the cross. We're told to get into Christ because judgment is coming. This earth as we know it is going to be entirely destroyed. And again, that should not lead us to fear. It should motivate us because we have a lot of unfinished business on this earth as the church. We need to be living holy lives. We need to get serious about our faith. We need to be sharing the gospel with people every chance we get to broadcast the truth. Kind of like a lighthouse, just shines the light, protecting all who see it. Now, some of you here this morning really don't have any frame of reference for what I've talked about this morning because you don't know Jesus. But I want to tell you this morning, there is a God in heaven 
And he sent his son 2,000 years ago to come to this earth and pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. We're all sinners. And what that means is that we've become enemies of God by our actions. We cannot be with him forever. He cannot have sin in his presence. And so the default situation is that we all sit under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. But because he loves us so much as well, he wanted to make a way for us to be saved. And so Jesus comes and sheds his own blood on the cross for us. You see, it should have been me on the cross, and it should have been you on the cross paying for your own sins, but Jesus did it for us. And he says, anyone who believes in him, his death, burial, and resurrection will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And that's on offer to everybody today. There's nobody that's excluded. Every person in this room now has no excuse for not being with Jesus forever and ever. So what about those of you who do know Jesus, who are saved? Are you living for him? Are you excited for his return? You know, the early church talked about the return of Christ all the time. It was in their songs. It was what they greeted each other with. They reminded each other all the time that Jesus is soon coming and we need to be ready. We need to be vigilant. We need to be giving of our resources. Some of you need to seriously think about how much money you have in the bank right now and that it needs to be sown into God's kingdom because when you do that, you actually send it on ahead. You send it into heaven. The Bible says, where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. Are you living on mission? Are you ready? Are you expecting his return? It's to be the perspective of every Christian in every generation. We don't know how long. Could Jesus return in five years? I think so. Could he return in 50? Possibly. 500? We don't know. That's not the point. It's never been the point. It's for us to discern and live holy lives. And something else it does for us is it enhances our worship to be reminded that Jesus is coming in the clouds with great glory should be the greatest hope of our lives to see our Savior face to face and to know that we're on his team. We'll be safe. And it should draw worship from our hearts. And so we're going to spend some time doing just that this morning. I want to invite you to engage as we close this morning with some songs of worship. I'm not even going to explain them to you because the words should speak for themselves. This is our offering to God this morning.